This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. The 5.4 billion US dollar clean technology fund is one of the two multi-donor trust funds under the Climate Investments Fund. It is empowering transformation in developing countries by providing resources to scale up low-carbon technologies with significant potential for long-term greenhouse gas emissions. Over 4 billion US dollars of its resources have already been approved for implementing renewable energy energy efficiency, and clean transport. Hello and welcome. This is your weekly Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Today for the Financing Change in Africa series, we feature the Clean Technology Fund. Danny Morris, the Clean Energy Lead Coordinator for the Clean Technology Fund, is here to tell us about the CTF. Later in the show, we will be talking to Fatima Hamdouche, the Director of Strategic Steering Moroccan Agency for Solar Energy, MASEM. She will be telling us what has led to the success of the largest solar plant globally lighting up Morocco. But before, just a reminder, this episode is part of the Financing Change in Africa series made possible by a collaboration between the Climate Investment Funds, the African Development Bank, and the Africa Climate Conversations. Denny, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about the Clean Technology Fund. The CTF was the, the first fund established under the Climate Investment Funds, and it was uh, established back in 2008 in response to a call from G7 and the G20 to find ways to kickstart climate investments, which at the time were, you know, um, were, they just were not being made to a great degree by the international community. Mm-hmm. And the goal of CTF when it was set up to was to empower transformation in developing countries with a focus on middle income countries mm-hmm. by providing resources which they could use to scale up low carbon or zero carbon technologies yeah. that had potential um, for significant potential for long term greenhouse gas emission savings. Sure. So um, the way this the CTF works is our projects Uh are implemented through partners Uh that we work with um, to provide concessional finance to them that they can then use to develop uh, large-scale country-led projects and programs Uh in renewable energy, energy efficiency, sustainable transport, really across a a whole range of clean technology areas and yeah. sectors. All right. So the Clean Technology Fund, uh, when I was looking to uh, it, we found that it's actually a 5.4 billion uh, US dollar fund. Um, and, and I was wondering in terms of when it comes to working in Africa, where have you been working in Africa and how much of that money is all that, uh, how much of that money goes into Africa? Yeah, sure. So we are a $5.4 billion fund, although we recently launched a new program worth mm-hmm. about 350 million. So we're up to 5.7 now, okay, okay. which is exciting. Mm. Um, and in Africa, we have about 27 projects mm. that uh, cover a range of countries. Um, when you can think about the CTF experience in Africa, it really brackets 
the entire continent because our major intervention areas, at least at the beginning of the program, mm -hmm. were in Morocco, mm -hmm. Egypt, and South Africa. Mm. Um, and those, those three countries, they tell the early story of CTF. And then the sort of the later phase that we're in now, um, where we're entering more um, work in more countries. So we've increased work in Nigeria. We have a couple private sector projects in Burkina Faso and Uganda. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of an interesting contrast of how the program started and its initial approach versus what it's doing now. Mm. Um, and I think sets us up well for what we hope to do in the future. You say it's uh, different from how the project started and where it is now. Uh, are the other projects in renewable and does it mean, um, how do, how, just tell me what are, how you started and where you are at the moment in terms of working in Africa. Sure. So when I think of the CTF story in Africa, mm. you can kind of think of it as, as three phases. The first phase, we took some big bets early on. Okay. Um, and I'll get into that, what that means. Mm -hmm. um, we sort of watched things unfold. And based on our experience, um, the second phase was adjusting to reality on the ground and responding to markets demand and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so we're now sort of at the end of that phase and entering a new phase where we're developing new programs that we think can really continue to pave the path to zero carbon economies in Africa. Mm. So let me sort of talk about the big bets that were sure. made early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Africa, at the beginning of when CTF was established back in 2008, 2009, there was I think uh, identified by a number of MDBs and, and countries an opportunity to invest in some technology that had a lot of promise at the time. And mm -hmm. I'm talking about concentrated solar power. Okay. It was seen as, you know, a really um, exciting area that could benefit from some, some concentrated investment from what CTF provides. Mm -hmm. And CTF, the one of its great strengths is that it provides concessional finance that's concession that's finance that is available at below market rates to countries to use mm -hmm. to do riskier types of interventions mm -hmm. right we like to say that our our capital is risk bearing it's patient and it allows for different kinds of approaches that might be some experimentation with different sorts of financial instruments, mm -hmm. or it could be taking these big bets. So the big bet that we, that was taken at the beginning of the fund was concentrated solar power. Mm -hmm. And with that, we really focused on Morocco mm -hmm. and the newer concentrated solar plant, um, which received almost half a billion in resources from CTF, mm -hmm. um, 425 million that was able to mobilize an additional two and a half billion from MDBs and bring in private sector partners to mobilize their resources at uh, more than 300 million. Mm -hmm. The result of that intervention was um, that the NOR complex in Morocco became the largest solar complex in the world. Um, you know, 580 megawatt um, structure complex. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, helped not only put Morocco in sort of a leadership position when it comes to developing clean energy on the continent, 
but also actually helped shift the cost curve of concentrated solar power. Um, right now, I think CTF is responsible for about 15% of financing in concentrated solar power around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not only in Morocco, it's also in South Africa. Um, as I said, our story kind of, the early story sort of brackets the continent. In South Africa, um, C CTF invested in three projects totaling, again, about half a billion, mm -hmm. um, which brought in additional financing from the MDBs at about half a billion as well. Um, and we were able to develop three concentrated solar plants in the country with um, one being the um, first, the first CSP um, in a developing country was built in South Africa with CTF resources combined with MDB resources. Mm -hmm. So that sort of represented the big bets that, that we took early on. Some other ones you can, you can think about um, were sort of paving the path for wind energy in Egypt was one of our early interventions. Um, we also, um, SIF, working with CTF and also with our energy access fund, SREP, which I think you'll talk about in a later episode, we're very focused on geothermal as well. So these are technology areas where an opportunity was seen to make these big bets and try and, and move move the needle when it comes to technology costs and deployment. Thank you so much for that. I'm just listening to you and wondering, um, what are the lessons that you've actually learned? And one of the critical things that I would want us to address, basically want you to address is, um, Africa, in most cases, uh, the cost of investment goes high because of the perceived risk. And especially some some of the par parts of the continent, you find probably there are issues of security. But then again, the, 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 the cost of, um, investment generally uh, you'll find even the cost of borrowing for uh, big projects you find it goes high because of the perceived risk what is your experience as far as uh, the risk in the continent and your in investment in terms of ctf yeah you know the risk is real it's a real consideration that we have to make and so that's why in the sort of second phase of CTF operations that I mentioned, mm -hmm. we had to pivot to be more flexible and be more responsive to conditions on the ground. I will admit that some of our early attempts at intervention um, in some countries were kind of stymied by um, the, the risk that existed or were perceived on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would be difficult to uh, attract private sector resources. Mm. And, you know, an example is in Nigeria, our initial efforts were to develop a $250 million implementation plan in renewable energy and, and urban transport. And uh, as those projects were developed, there were a number of different snags, right? There were issues with procurement or there were issues with design or there were sort of financial troubles with some of our partners. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we kind of had to pull back and try to be responsive to the markets or to, to the demand really. So the risk is always there, but we sort of exist to help alleviate some of that risk and really try to um, make it palatable for other kinds of investments. So we're always looking for we're, you know, we're in through our MDB partners, we're always in close contact with um, our country partners trying to figure out what what they think is doable 
um, or feasible in situations. We're always on the lookout for private sector actors and trying to entice them to make these investments. And so in the second phase of CTF operations in mm -hmm. Africa, there's really been a focus on trying to mobilize private sector resources and identify operations that can attract the private sector. Mm -hmm. So the result of that has been, you know, in Nigeria, we have sort of focused our efforts on um, things like transport and you know recently got a project approved a 20 million dollar project to develop a cable car um, in the city of lagos right which is uh, attracting uh, 270 million more than 270 million mm -hmm. uh, in co-financing right and that has um, uh, helped facilitate a partnership uh, between the public sector and the private sector Mm -hmm. Even even thinking back to our big bet in Morocco, um, what we were able to do in what was perceived as a risky sector, we were able to come in with our resources and really show the private sector that these type of investments can be successful. Mm -hmm. And so then that sort of attracted them to be willing to make more investments later on. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I'll just sort of end this piece by by talking about flexibility and an example again I go back to South Africa mm. we sort of had initial ideas to make investments in solar power and um, due to sort of financial constraints with with ESCOM we had to step back and restructure uh, a project that could be more responsive to the needs of the country and could attract um, private sector investors and so in restructuring that project, we actually focused more on supporting a wind farm with battery storage, an innovative, you know, a sort of trailblazing project to incorporate uh, battery storage, which is resulting in a lot of interest from the private sector. And, and South Africa is now becoming one of the world's hotspots for developing storage technology and uh, financing to support those installations. Hmm. And apart from mobilizing funds, uh, working closely you know, with from the private sector, how do you work with uh, the local government and uh, the local CSOs? When it comes to project work, we really work through our MDB partners because they're the ones on the ground, hmm. um, you know, kind of doing the day to day. For, uh, you know, in a larger sense, we have our governance structure, our trust fund committees which have government representatives on them and you know we engage them regularly to talk about projects to talk about um you know the direction that that the the, the ctf is going um strategic conversations um and we try to incorporate cso's in that as well so we have a very robust stakeholder network mm -hmm. um, that we reach out to and, and try to keep them informed of what's going on within the CTF context. Um, and then also, as I said, working through our MDB partners to make sure that those day-to-day -day, um, needs are being met using the, the safeguards that the MDBs have developed over time and their uh, sort of engagement protocols for, for working with CSOs and making sure that their voices can be heard. Perfect. And probably maybe you can share some of the lessons that you've actually learned um, while working in Africa that probably someone, uh, the institutions that, I'm, uh, that are listening to us today would actually learn from there and if they weren't uh, in terms of improving uh, their investment in Africa. Yeah, you know, a couple lessons learned sort of jump 
to the front of my mind. One is sort of um, really institutional buy-in. When a country has an opportunity to have a CTF program, when they're really committed sort of across agencies mm -hmm. and work very hard to make sure that those agencies are, are in constant conversation and acting more as one entity, then it just breeds a lot of success because you can overcome sort of institutional or structural barriers when everyone is kind of in, in it working together. Another lesson that I think is really valuable is um, sort of doing the, the technical building through um, technical assistance up front can set, can set you up for success in, in trying to conquer those barriers. Um, thinking about what is needed and what actions need to be done in concert with an investment program can be really helpful. In the Egypt um, wind operation that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. CTF resources were approved, the financing was deployed in parallel with laws being changed to make sure that they could be used more effectively. So that kind of synergy across different parts of government activity really can provide a lot of value and can help ensure that uh, a CTF operation can be successful. Mm. And actually, one of the things that comes into my mind right now is one, um, just um, how do a country or how does a project qualify for a CTF funding? Yeah, so, you know, CTF and the SIFs overall, um, they have a limited membership. Mm. Um, and, and that was sort of established from the beginning to help concentrate resources in, in countries where it was viewed that there could be a big impact made, right? We're, we're very focused on transformational impact. And so, um, you know, CTF has 15 member countries, official member countries, and um, a regional program, which is um, the Middle East and North Africa concentrated solar power program, which mm -hmm. incorporates a couple others. Um, but then, you know, there's the larger, the larger SIF family mm. that are um, those countries that are involved in other programs can actually apply for private sector financing through CTF. So that expands the um, the the possible the the number of countries that can try and get money um, or resources from CTF if they're working with the private sector. Um, you know, the starting point for every country is working with their contacts in the MDBs, mm -hmm. specifically African Development Bank, uh, the World Bank, and the International Finance Corporation. That's where a lot of the ideas get, uh, you know, sort of tackled and refined, and then they bubble up to the CTF, where we can say, yes, with our resources, we can support this aspect of the project. We can help remove the risk from this part of it. Um, and that's, you know, kind of, that's the way that, that we get projects and, and countries can get involved with us. Mm, okay. And, and, and um, uh, one of the things that I found um, over the years I've understood that is a major challenge when it comes to many African countries accessing financing uh, is actually writing bankable proposals. I'm just wondering with your members, and uh, that is both for the CIF and, and CTF, do you work with your members to uh, making sure that your members can actually write bankable proposals that can be able to actually be funded? You know, this is really a space where our MDB partners take the lead and they come to us to ask for resources 
on technical assistance to help build those bankable projects and build those pipelines, which is really what we're looking for. Mm. So to facilitate that, last year, I think it was, we in the SIF started a technical assistance facility where SIF countries can come and apply for small amounts of money to help build the technical capacity. Mm -hmm. The idea being that we'll have this, that, that, that a small amount of work done at the beginning can then lead to a pipeline of bankable projects mm -hmm. later on. I mean, it is always a challenge to sort of do this. And that's something that we have seen over the course of our, our operations is um, making sure that bankable projects are actually bankable over time. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of trial and error to the benefit of the CTF over time. And so incorporating lessons learned and facilitating dialogues amongst countries that are receiving CTF resources is something that we try to do as well. So we, over the years, have had a number of dialogues. We have an ongoing series of events to bring practitioners together to share the lessons they've learned and, mm -hmm. and the challenges that they've faced bringing bankable projects to the fore to receive funding. Oh, fantastic. And Danny, what's the way forward? As not the way forward, but basically the future. How does the future look like uh, for CTF in Africa? It's a, it's a very exciting time, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, we are in the midst of finalizing a whole new set of programs that we hope can really benefit Africa. So there, there are a couple that, that I want to mention. First, there is a, um, a window in CTF mm -hmm. that just launched uh, in 2020. It's called the Global Energy Storage Program. Mm -hmm. That's a, you know, uh, capitalized with $350 million looking at how to jumpstart energy storage projects in developing countries. Um, so we now have, we have put forth a call to MDBs to bring us their good ideas. Mm -hmm. They have responded with, with a huge pipeline, um, you know, a, a robust one in Africa covering battery storage, mm -hmm. um, and other types of technologies that really can help bring renewables closer to becoming 24 hour, seven day a week sources of power. Mm -hmm. In fact, the first program that we approved. Uh, under this new window mm. is for battery um, storage in South Africa. Okay. Um, financing was given to the um, International Finance Corporation mm. to respond to a call for proposals from ESCOM and from South Africa to bring forward um, generation projects that have storage technology incorporated in them. Mm. So that's really sort of, I think, the next step in the CTF journey in a way that we can have a big impact in Africa, because not only can it enable renewables to integrate into large grids, but it can also support mini grids in the distributed generation that um, you know continues to play a major role in Africa and, and will in the foreseeable future. Hmm. Leading from that, another program that we have approved and are currently trying to raise resources for is our renewable energy integration program. That sort of takes the storage piece and um, moves it forward to incorporate other aspects of mm -hmm. renewable integration. So that's looking at things like grid balancing and developing virtual power plants and, and doing all the big and small things that need to be done mm. to make a grid 
uh, clean, full clean energy and make mm. renewables, as I said, that 24 seven reliable source of power. Mm. Um, so I think that provides a great opportunity for African countries to come forward with innovative solutions. And, you know, that will include not only like hard infrastructure type investments in the grid and things like that, but also interventions like developing new software tools and new management tools and building technical capacity mm. to balance grids to make sure that, um, you know, renewables can serve um, when they're at their highest, um, that energy can perhaps be stored and then it can be distributed when the sun stops shining and the wind stops blowing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that I think is sort of what we hope will help lead Africa on a zero carbon path to the future. Fatima, thank you so much for joining us. Today, Morocco boasts the largest plant of its type globally, providing renewable energy to more than 2 million households. But in 2019, the kingdom's nearly 95% energy sources were from the external sources. Can you give us a background on how things were then and where Morocco is today? Thank you, Sophie, for that question, because I, I think, you know, putting the project into perspective it mm -hmm. is very important uh, to understand the various drivers that led to the implementation of no projects. Uh, just a, a quick reminder that in 2009, so a decade ago, uh, Morocco was actually faced to a double challenge. The first one was from a socio-economic perspective, uh, Morocco had launched uh, a couple of nationwide strategies on various sectors, being industry, transportation, real estate, telecommunication, and so on. And energy is definitely at, at the, the heart of such development. So the growing energy need resulting from implementation of this project was the first challenge to, to tackle. The second one was from an environmental perspective. This was also a challenge that was also key to Morocco to find ways uh, to develop its economy, but in a sustainable manner and to find ways to mitigate climate change effects. Mm -hmm. um, so this pressure at the time was very, uh, you know, at a high level since so uh, uh, you, we were very dependent on energy imports for our energy. And we mm. were also at a time where the energy prices were at the highest level. So the fluctuation of energy prices and the barrel price at the time was up to $150 uh, was very impacting the, the sustainable development of the country. Mm. So really the priority was to see how to guarantee an energy that could be locally available, reliable, and cost competitive. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, Morocco uh, is blessed with excellent renewable energy resources, uh, yeah. mainly solar and wind. But really on the uh, wind uh, aspect, we have very good potentials and uh, very good capacity factors in some sites. Uh, and same in solar, be it for the photovoltaic or the thermal uh, renewable energy, uh, this gives the opportunity and challenges to, to Morocco to really innovate and establish a, a real strategic breakthrough. Uh, mm. And this was really possible through uh, the vision and the leadership of His Majesty the King Mohammed VI that has, you know, set very ambitious targets uh, for our national development uh, with now more than 52% of renewable energies that has to be 
in our energy mix by by 2030. So, you know, in 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 a in a summary, you know, from a socio-economic but also in an environmental perspective, mm-hmm. uh, and with the potential that we have in Morocco, this was really a, a breakthrough, as I mentioned, to develop the renewables uh, in Morocco. As of today, we actually um, have more than 3,700 megawatt of renewable energy project uh, that are currently operational in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And this uh, allows us to avoid uh, about 5.5 you know, million tons of CO2 emissions per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the projects that are currently uh, under operation are solar projects, of course. We have uh, about 700 megawatt of uh, projects operational. Uh, including the NOWAZZ uh, solar complex, and uh, with uh, it's uh, you know it's a multi-technology complex that is fully operational with uh, four projects, and also with uh, you know more than 1,200 megawatt of wind project, and also hydro project uh, about 1,700 megawatt. So as of today. We are uh, of about uh, 40% of our energy mix that is from renewables and uh, with with more than uh, 4,000 megawatt that are currently under development, uh, they are either committed or under construction. This uh, really paves phase paved the way uh, to our objective of uh, 52% of uh, energy uh, from renewables by 2030. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is basically where we are today. So we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, started the, the, the road of renewables 10 years ago. We are mm-hmm. still having, you know, many projects under development, but uh, clearly going uh, uh, to achieve this target that has been uh, uh, set earlier. Mm. It's been 10 years on the road and what would you say has led to this success? I would say that um, this success is definitely can be attributed uh, to the strong involvement of uh, all the institutional actors, you know, at starting from the highest level of the state, but also all the various ministries, all the various agencies that are involved in, in the development of renewables in Morocco. And, and this was actually possible thanks to the establishment of a clear and structured institutional framework uh, with several laws that were adopted uh, to support the development of the sector. Uh, and in particular, this led to the creation of, of Mazen, uh, a dedicated actor to, to support the development of, of such projects with really specific prerogatives in that sense. And maybe what is also worth mentioning is, is Mazen is actually really uh, acting on a dual uh, approach uh, mm-hmm. on a public but also on a private uh, basis uh, in order to to guarantee uh, that attractive uh, conditions are, are in place to to support and contribute to the development of renewables indeed mazen is is a publicly funded company uh, mm-hmm. and in that sense has an institutional mission to ensure that the country's objectives are met uh, to ensure that it maximizes also all the impacts uh, from a social economic perspective. Uh, that's what we, we used to call the integrated ap- approach is mm-hmm. not only to ensure the development of renewable energy, but also looking how to foster the development of industry, of research, of local development of, of the population. And, and on the other hand, Mazen as a limited company has also a private and 
proactive approach when developing its projects uh, and to ensure that it attracts uh, the best skills, the, be the best experience, expertise and, and partners. Uh, by adopting also a market-oriented approach, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we have made the choice in Morocco at the time not to adopt the, the feeding tariffs, but rather to look at the market and push the market through a competitive approach to propose the best solutions uh, to respond to our energy needs. So it's really that, as I mentioned, that dual approach from public to private mm -hmm. uh, that was, I think, also key. Uh, in, in making uh, renewables uh, happen in Morocco. How does the, the independent power production, uh, the IPPs work? Yes, the, the question actually was at the time to see how to ensure that the private sector and the developers that will be uh, selected, that they concentrate on their core competencies and expertise uh, in order to maximize their, their, you know, their value to the projects. It, it, it was to see how to ensure that optimal risk allocation uh, was put in place uh, between the, the various parties involved. So when, when structuring the NOR uh, projects, uh, we, we wanted to make sure that all the prerequisites were in place for uh, these IPPs and uh, really to have a kind of plug and play approach. So uh, when the developers are selected, they have a secured land with all the required infrastructure that are available, uh, be it the grid connection, the water resources, the roads, telecommunications. So really to have them uh, develop their projects on, on a land that is fully equipped. Mm -hmm. uh, also to have uh, long-term PPAs, and that definitely enables them to secure the offtake of the produced electricity. Mm -hmm. And finally, also to see how to secure financing at uh, the very good conditions. Um, being a public entity enabled us to also uh, rely on the support of the Moroccan government guarantee and be able to leverage concessional financing for the development of this project. And that's where uh, the involvement of in international financial institutions, and in particular, uh, the AFDB and CIF contribution was, was key at the time. In terms of having public-private partnership, to what extent has it eased access to financing? Uh, yes, so uh, the financing was definitely one of the conditions for these projects to, to be uh, running. Uh, and uh, so one of the challenges was actually to be able to leverage the best financial uh, conditions uh, in order for the project to also be uh, competitive at the end. Uh, and thanks to the dual approach that I mentioned earlier, so Mazen Bid, a public entity, was actually uh, able to leverage concessional funding from in international uh, financial institutions such as uh, AFBD and, and CIF. So that was through that mechanism that uh, the financing was uh, secured and then reprocessed to the project companies and to the project uh, private sector. So it's through that mechanism that the, 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 the financing was made available also for the project uh, uh, for, for the private sector.
And I'm thinking in terms, of course, when it started in 2009, the risk must have been higher then because then uh, renewables were not seen as they are seen today. Have you seen the cost of the project come down from 2009? Because this project has been implemented in phases. How has the risk reduced? And in terms of the cost, has it also come down, cost of production? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I'm convinced that by uh, uh, 2009 and with the joint effort of institutions such as uh, IFPG and CIF, I'm, I'm convinced contributed to the dynamic of the sector, to the uh, evolution of, of its competitiveness, as you mentioned, to the reduction of the cost that we have uh, uh, testimonied since since then, uh, be it on various uh, technologies, uh, there, there has been a clear decrease of, of the cost associated. We are also, uh, from a financing perspective, uh, you know, for, for some of the wind projects that are we are launching today, uh, we, we have tested also the market and the commercial uh, banking market is also responding today which was not the case 10 years ago so uh, definitely this this joint effort at the time uh, has uh, has allowed the sector to 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 evolve and has made it uh, competitive as it is today uh, so we're still uh, in some projects in a structuring uh, scheme that I have uh, described with the concessional loans that are that are also involved. But more and more, we're looking at uh, the private also from a financing perspective that is uh, taking more and more uh, a place in this sector. What are the challenges you faced over the years? Well, maybe one of the challenge uh, regarding uh, this uh, specific financing uh, uh, topic was uh, uh, that we had to, at the time, coordinate with up to six international institutions for one project, with uh, each one of them having their different guidelines, their different requirements. So uh, at the beginning, it was a challenge. And I think that we have uh, uh, managed to, to to successfully, uh, you know, coordinate that part. And uh, we, we have uh, now uh, a process and a mechanism that is uh, that is in place which actually allowed us to for each one take the best and the highest uh, requirements be it from a technical environmental social aspects uh, so really i think uh, it turns out that it was a very very enriching experience and an exchange of expertise uh, not only from a financial perspective but also as i mentioned from a technical from an environmental from a social perspective uh, with really the involvement of the various experts uh, to, to contribute to the success of what uh, what is today in our, in our project and our research in particular. As we as we close, just a brief, the most key lessons and what the future holds for the Polisat Solar Project. The first one is definitely, you know, having an institutional framework that, uh, you know, have all uh, involvement of the various actors in charge clear roles and responsibilities that are defined for really a coordinated action that that is very very key uh, the second one i would say is uh, you know making sure that the project has the appropriate uh, structuring risk allocation uh, and through this public-private partnership it really proved to be a, you know, an effective way to bring forward new utility scale generation uh, and, and of, of, uh, of technologies and to bring uh, these innovation at uh, very competitive uh, uh, conditions. Uh, for me, the third one is also 
ensuring that uh, you know the development of the renewables has also a positive impact on the development of the industrial ecosystems uh, around renewables. So just a few words on that. Uh, in Morocco, we had put in place a, a solar, well, originally a solar, now a renewable cluster. Mm -hmm. And that, re that was really uh, a place where a network was created and make uh, the exchange possible between the industrial, the researchers, the developers, the, the various academic actors uh, to contribute to the development of, of this uh, sector. And uh, moreover, it was also uh, in the approach to always encourage the private developers to see and evaluate the Moroccan market potential. Mm. And at the end, uh, they really, uh, on the, the Norway ZK, for example, decided to really create partnership with Moroccan actors. And the result was that Moroccan companies uh, contributed in some projects up to 40% of you know of the, uh, the the value added of, of the, the project so it's really was a, also a way uh, to demonstrate that relying on the local market can also be uh, a win-win situation uh, mm -hmm. in that uh, perspective yes, and, mm -hmm. and and finally the the last one but not the least is uh, you know ensuring that the project uh, contribute to the local development of the population mm -hmm. um, you know developing the new ways that uh, projects could not be considered a, as a success if the conditions uh, of the surrounding population was not improved. Uh, th these projects are usually located in areas where the living conditions are, are below the national average. Mm -hmm. So ensuring, you know, population have access to basic infrastructure such as electricity and water uh, was a necessity. And uh, actions were really taken at the very early stages uh, of the projects to, to improve these conditions. And um, we also have uh, a dedicated team that is also uh, in charge of, of local development and that contributes to uh, many, many actions that have been initiated, uh, you know, in several areas, uh, be it education, health, uh, uh, sustainable agriculture, actions also for women empowerment etc so uh, and and of course uh, making sure that uh, uh, employment and training are also uh, we have a local uh, you know uh, employment that is that is also encouraged and that was also made possible through uh, you know the partnerships with the local uh, employment agencies and the local training uh, office in Warzazet. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say that really in, in conclusion, the, the, the support of all the partners, be it public or private, yeah. uh, the involvement of, of, of institutions such as IFPG and CIF was definitely also key. Mm -hmm. And uh, this integrated approach uh, you, you know, looking at the broader and sustainable impacts uh, were also key when, when developing uh, no, no projects. That was Fatuma Hamdouche, the Director of Strategic Steering Moroccan Agency for Solar Energy, Masson. Earlier on, we had Danny Morris, the Clean Energy Lead Coordinator for the Clean Technology Funds, telling us about the Clean Technology Funds and the giant solar plants lighting up Moroccan from the desert made possible by funds from the city.
be sure to join me again next week on Thursday for the Financing Change Series. But on Tuesday, we will be meeting up for the mental health and climate change impact. But stay in touch by visiting our website, www.africaclimateconversations.com or through Spotify, Apple, Google, or any other channel you access your podcast. Talk to us via email, info at africaclimateconversations.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or even subscribe to receive a weekly newsletter by hitting the subscribe button on our website. Remember, this is an eight-part series on financing change in Africa made possible by a collaboration between the Climate Investment Funds, the African Development Bank, and the Africa Climate Conversations. See you on Tuesday, but until then, kwaheri, my name is Sophie Bukwa. Inaendeshwa na Afripods.